Hey, everybody. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And let's get right to it and introduce today's interviewee. Nori, uh, tell me if I've got this right. You are still living with your dad in Yonkers, New York? Yep. You're still paying off uh, massive college debt? Mm-hmm. You have a, a baby daughter that you're partly responsible for? Yep, 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 yep. And you are pulling down, what, about 100 bucks per night at comedy clubs? Yeah, I mean, you make it sound like that. I don't know if I'm winning or losing in that situation. Oops, I did not mean to make him sound like a loser, so let me start over here. Nori Davis is a young comedian on the rise. I uh, think on the rise is the appropriate expression. It would be a little premature to say Nori has fully made it in comedy yet, but he is starting to get noticed. He is beginning to get some headlining gigs in the clubs. He has landed some acting roles on high-profile TV shows like Boardwalk Empire and Inside Amy Schumer. And he has recently released his first comedy album. It's called Home Game. So as you're going to hear in this interview, things are starting to come together for Nori Davis in a very nice way. I mean, I'm making a living, and I'm taking care of responsibility, and I'm just putting out some good art, pumping out some good material that I'm proud of, and just going to continue doing more. So I'm, I'm doing the things that I want to do. How about that? I think that's the American dream, right? Doing the things you want to do and make money at it. How uh, long before you pay off the college debts at this rate? Oh, man, I'm leaving that for my daughter. I'm not even worrying about that. That's the purpose of children. So when I die, be like, here you go. Take it over. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm paying it little by little. Um, well, tell me about your background. I know you grew up in Yonkers, which, um, you know, for us out on the West Coast is just one of those funny names in the New York area, like Hoboken, you know, doesn't mean anything. Yonkers, yeah, it's, it's just like that. It is one of those funny names. It still is that. So it's a county, part of Westchester County, which is like right outside the Bronx. And they actually did try to petition to become one of the boroughs. But it's uh, according to like people in the city in Brooklyn, they really consider the area that I am like Canada. It would never be a borough because you can't take a train there. Like, you have to drive. Growing up here was... Uh, it was pretty cool, man. I mean, a place that you're born into is just, it's, it's, it's your home. It's what you know. So I really couldn't compare it to anywhere else because I, I, I was born and raised here. But I'll say I had a decent living. I uh, was in the hood for a little bit and transitioned over to a nice suburban area. And still, like, we had this place called Across the Tracks to where the project housings were at. All, all the kids we still all used to play together. Uh, Yonkers, we would call it a big town, but socially very small, to where all the people knew each other. Everybody's family and friends knew each other, basically. There was only four high schools. Uh, there can be a fight across town, and then, like, in a couple of hours, you go on the other side of town, they'd be like, yo, I heard you got into a fight. <laughs> I mean, it's like, damn, how, how'd I get off so fast? It's like, yo, my Nokia went off, man. No, that was back when they had the Nokia with the one light, with the indigo light. <laughs> And uh, had, like, one game called Snake, where, where it was just a line chasing a f***ing square. <laughs> and it would grow bigger. Snake had no head back in the days, man, when I was in high school. Had no head. It was just a line. The big thing for kids in, in Yonkers was to go to the city. That was like traveling to Six Flags. Manhattan? Yeah, Manhattan, yeah, because it was far. It was pretty far. Like, we had to take a bus and a train. So, yeah, it was cool growing up in Yonkers, man. I like it. I'm still here because I, I, I love the city, but I also love the freeness and 
Uh-huh. It's quiet. And your dad is a, a police officer? Uh, yeah, yeah, he's a police officer in, uh, in Yonkers, New York. And, and he was the, the whole time you were growing up? Uh, yeah. What did that mean for you and, and your siblings, having a cop for a dad? That just meant that I better not fuck up, so I don't embarrass him. But other than that, it meant a lot to my friends. So they thought they thought they can get away with shit and use my name. And uh, there were plenty of times I was like, nah, man, I don't know you, dog. Don't use my name. <laughs> I don't, I, it's not like I got the cops by my side because I didn't. Because my father always says to never use anything as an excuse, you know. Just you got you to you a man. You got to be your own man. Don't use me as a get out of free card. And I, I definitely try not to do that. I did use it. <laughs> I, tried, I tried not to use it for my friends. I mean, that's... That's horrible. I would never do that. How did you use it? Oh, like I get pulled over, and I have a PBA card, and they be like, "Oh, you're you're Davis' son, yeah," and they let me go, and I'm like, "Woo, that was good." So I escape a couple of tickets and stuff like that, but that was good. You said PBA card, right? Police, yeah, Benevolent Association. Is that what that is? Yeah, you, yep, you got it. Uh, yeah. A smart thing to carry around or to have it on your is, car. Man. Hey, man, but it only works for youngers, because let me tell you, I, I, I use an NYPD, and he's like, I don't know what the fuck that is. I'm like, damn. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, it's not like uh, American Express. Were you ever subjected to that whole stop and frisk thing that New York had? No, I no. never was. Mm. Because what I do is, man, I, I do my business, and then I get the fuck out. New York City is not really an area I hang around a lot. And when I do, it's at night. Inside, I do my shows, I hang out with people, and then I and I go back to Yonkers and mind my business. I like to get in and get out, so, nah, never that, man. Thank God. Mm. Was there comedy, uh, was there a comedic gene in your family, you think? No. I saw pictures of my mom back in the day when she tried to become a model, where she was very slim, and but she was short, but she had like a great smile, and she was beautiful, she was cute. And uh, I think, but my grandmother shut that down and said, "You're gonna be a teacher." <laughs> and, she be, and she became a teacher. I think that's the only type of performing arts I know in my family. Uh-huh. Everybody else, everybody else's educational background: get a job, go to school, get a job, and become a fucking number. Uh-huh. I didn't want to do that. I like being my own boss, you know. So, when did you start thinking that you could be funny and that maybe that could be something that a person could actually do for a living? Uh, I, I say college. That's the only positive thing I got out of college. I, I hated the debt. I hated classes. I hated time. And t- people tell me I had, you know, I had to do this, and I really didn't. And when I mean people, I mean my mom. Like I really did not want to go to school, but she said you have to, so you get a job. Blah blah blah. That was her motto. But college did give me that. Where I met a bunch of kids. I was doing improv, and we would go to improv shows. And this was a time when. Paul Shear, Chris Gethard, Aziz were like in this traveling improv group that they did colleges for the UCB, and I got the chance to see them when I was in school, and I was like, oh, man, that's amazing. And then I also, who also came to my school? Ben Bailey came to my school, mm. and he, he just killed, man, blew me away. And I was just one of those kids how where today I have, like, comics at my show, not even comics, like young young college kids that like, like, hey, man, what's the advice about starting, blah, 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 I was one of those kids, and and I was asking Ben Bailey that question. And he was like, "You just got to do it." And I was like, "You know what? That's it." So we we did improv for like a two semesters, and then it, it got it got too competitive, and and like we all 
broke, branched out and did different things. So I, I did stand-up, and then I just never stopped. Mm. Yeah, never stopped since college, and it was, it was great. Fell in love with it. You mentioned UCB. I just, for our audience's sake, that's the Upright Citizens Brigade Improv Troop. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Amy Poehler, Besser, and them. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you said Aziz Ansari too. Was it was part of that? Yeah. Well, the traveling, the traveling yeah. college group. Yeah. He was. He was there at the show, and um, it was a lot of good guys that are like really big today. Once I saw them, I was like, Yeah, I, 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 I got to do this. And plus, in uh, my two-year college, I used to always watch stand up, and I would never, I would never stop doing that. But I never thought I would actually physically do it, you know? So that was cool. So when did you first attempt it? First attempted at the Comic Strip Live. The Comic Strip Live, I took one of their classes with D.S. Sweetler. D.S. Sweetler was a great guy. Still my good friend to this day, man. Um, he taught me set up, premise, punchline. But I used to go up there and just curse. <laughs> and then I would go up there and be like, motherfucking shit, bitches. <laughs> All my niggas need to know, blah, blah, blah. And he would go, all right, well, where's your premise? Where's your point? <laughs> and, then, and then from there, man, that, that was it. I just took it. And once he taught me those tools, the rest is I just had to build my own self. That's it. They gave, DF gave me the tools. I built the house. It was good. So I started that comic strip, got my feet wet. And then from there, I just kept doing open mics. And my model from today was just uh, be funny, make friends. Once you're funny somewhere, somebody sees you, they say, hey, you want to come do my show? All right, cool. Then you do that show. And then you do that show, somebody else sees you, they say, oh, you want to come do my bar show? And then and you bounce back and grow from there. And then you just do, then you do auditions in the clubs and you get your confidence up. You're like, let me audition here. And then they're like, oh, okay, you're awesome. Or or no, come back when you're better, and then you just keep trying, you keep going. I, I love that about stand-up. Like, I was determined to get better. You can always get better. There are those times when people don't laugh, though, and um, I'm not a comedian myself. I think I'd be too afraid to try it because it sounds pretty deadly standing there really trying to get a laugh out of people and not getting it. Oh, hell yeah, man. Do you know how vulnerable we are up there? Nobody fucking knows us. You don't know what people came from, what their problems are, and you have to go up there and just cut your chest open and be like, look, this is who I am, and this is why it's funny. So I just want to give you a break from your reality. You know, my technique is I don't, I don't, make, it, I don't make it about me. I make it about them through me if that makes sense. Like, like, look, let me tell you what's funny about my life or, or this observation so you can just get out of your own head and look at the performer on stage and you just like, you live and they live those moments with you. And then, um, they get that break from the reality. And it's just like, a, it's a journey, man. I just like movies, sitcoms, TV's great, but live performance, man, will never, ever, ever die. In my opinion. I love it, man. And I guess you're saying you have that fear, but I, I I'm a huge risk taker. Like before stand up, I used to street race. So the risk of putting my life in that driver's seat, like in some little-ass meter-meter Civic, I get, the same <laughs> I get the same adrenaline rush when I do stand-up on stage in front of strangers I never fucking met before. A street race, the worst thing that can happen is you'll crash and die, right? Yeah. The but... worst thing you, that happens in stand-up, yeah, you can bomb. <laughs> you but can bomb. Be, 
but you'll be alive physically. Maybe not emotionally, though. It might kill you emotionally. <laughs> so what about those moments when it failed? Like, I mean, I'm assuming you've had some where you thought something was really funny, you put it out there, and nothing came back. It, it hurts, man. It hurts. But you know what? It's, that's just something you got to just get over and, and build your tough skin because one thing I realized is that that bomb sticks with the performer, not the audience, because they don't remember you. They only uh -huh. remember what's good. If it's bad, it's forgettable. But in our head, we take that home with us like, man, that crowd thought I sucked, and blah, blah, blah. It's not like the audience is at home going, oh, I saw this terrible person, blah, blah, blah. No, they just like, next one. They, they <laughs> forgot about it. Then they go on and go to work or take care of their child or, you know, they do regular life shit. <laughs> we're, the, we're the one that got to hold that. So once we emotionally get over it, then you can move on to the next show. And, and that's the thing I use now. It's like I got another show. Or now you, you build an arsenal where you know jokes will always work to get you out of it so the crowd's back on your side and then, then you're doing good. Ah, you, know? you have recovery jokes? Yeah, you got to have recovery jokes. Yeah, 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 definitely. And, and that was my goal in the beginning was just to, to build myself up to an act. Then you have this act. Are you proud of that? And you're having fun. You're not just a fucking robot just pressing play and rewind, play and rewind every show. So I try to make it fun for the audience and fun for me. Because if it's fun for me, then it's going to be fun for them. So, mm. so yeah, man. It's, uh, I know how to get out of it now because I know what I'm working on. So I, I could just set it up funny and then, then go to another place and then bring it back, you know? So give us an example. Like, so you, put, you put some new material out there. It doesn't work. Uh, how do you recover quick? Um, all right. So right now I'm talking about the protests in New York. I'm talking about how um, the two police officers got shot, yeah. right? And um, it's all sad. It's all pain. And, and a lot of the audience that I don't know, they all have their different views on it. So I just go there and I just try to find find a funny perspective. The, the premise I have right now is that I'm not... Like, I try to protest, but I can't because I'm, I, I, I'm too selfish. I think of myself. Like, I want to protest, but it was like 29 degrees, so I had to go home, you know, like that. So I bring people into there, and sometimes there'll be older people where it doesn't work. So then I'll switch it into, like, all right, let me do a joke that works and talk about my father as a cop. And this joke always works where he, he pulled me over. And, um, and you know, cops are sneaky, and I got pulled over in an ice cream truck. Like, that gets a chuckle, and then the, the next joke is um, Mr. Softy pulled me over. Like, it's, it's not the best joke, but <laughs> it's a joke that I know and works that will get me out of it. And then I can go back to working on something that's deeper and darker, like protesting and injustice <laughs> in New York. So that that's an example like that. Yeah, so you're willing to, to, to wade into that area of um, the protests against police brutality, Eric Garner, Mike Brown. Michael Brown. Yeah, man, uh, can't breathe. Can't it's breathe. Great. It must have made it much more complicated, though, you know, for a comedian when those two officers were killed. I mean... Yeah. Uh, so how do you deal with that? How do you work with that? And, of course, you have a father who's a police officer. Yeah, so I I take the in between spectrum where I, where I say like, look, I don't like this and I don't like that. So I'm just like right in the middle to where 
you kill those cops. I mean, that's that's not right. I, for me, that I like the the stuff that's not touched is better gold to talk about because it's more memorable and it's real. Like I, I like talking about real shit, stuff that is going on in the paper, stuff that you think that would never be funny. And then to find the funny in it to make people go, wow, I, I never thought about that perspective. And then to make them laugh at it is just is, is gold to me. It's, it's something really special there, something special there. Mm. So um, that's that's what I'm working on now. So, yeah, it's uh, it, it, and it's also healing. It's also healing. Only two things I think that can heal people in the world, music and, well, yeah, physically, medicine. But mentally, music and stand-up make mm. a person laugh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so so you you planning on doing more material about uh, police and and young black males? Yeah, man. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm working on that whole section of my stand up and working on personal relationship stuff and the baby stuff. I'm going to introduce soon. So I'm working on the next album and working on a lot of projects. So I'm always going to continue working, producing stand up and. Making people laugh, man. I love it. Just uh, building my voice. I, I pretty much found it, but I'm just kind of building much more, getting more and more and more and more and more solid, you know? What would you say um, distinguishes your voice? I would say talking about topics nobody else is talking about and also finding an innocence to it because I look very young. Yes. But, but <laughs> my voice is very mature. So it's kind of like you have this grown little boy on stage that knows what's happening in politics, what's happening in social, social indifferences, that knows what's happening in relationships, but it's coming from this cute little innocent black face. You're like, what the fuck is this? So uh, I, I, I take that edge that I can say anything and I can get away with it. So you're going to use your innocent looks mm-hmm. to get away with mm-hmm. shit. Uh, yeah, I mean, if that helps the yeah. audience, I mean, I, I it kind of works. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But what what works is powerful jokes. Uh-huh. I mean, I think that'll get me a a pass, and then people actually listen to the joke and they go like, "Oh, wow, that was good." So now they're like, "All right, they take me serious." Instead of some, instead of me looking like um, a rookie or looking so green, as they say, I don't like everyone to look green. Do you think your looks um, played into your your getting certain acting roles? Well, I didn't really get too many. I just I just did Borough Empire. That's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, that's true. But I'm very humbled at what I did, and uh, very honored also. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, with with acting, you know, you you play the part. You you really can't control that. If if you do the the work great, then the rest is casting. The rest is like, do you look the part? This other person was the part, and those are other people's personal projects. How did you get the part in Boardwalk Empire? This is a, a small part, but you were in yeah, two yeah. episodes, I think. Yeah, recruiting. Uh, I was working with Chalky White and his club. So I auditioned, man. Just auditioned, went in there. Um, oh, they had a call, yeah. and you heard about it, and you went in? Yeah, my manager got like, um, he's on the internet with the, they're looking for people. And uh, one of those uh, actors' websites, I don't know what it is. But he just called me to audition. I did it. And I got selected. So it was, it was pretty cool. Uh, interesting story. I, I brought my eight-month daughter with me at the time. She was eight months to the audition. So I had 
my shiny shoes. I had my suit. I was dressed up like a ball again, Pirate. And I had a stroller and my daughter going to the audition. And I really think that helped. <laughs> I really think. Really? I, I, yeah, because I really think the casting lady saw this young black kid, single father, uh-huh. lugging his baby to every audition. She was just like, oh. I, I think, because she said, who baby that is? It's my daughter. She's cool. She's sleeping. And she had that face like, oh, my God. I can't believe he's out here with this baby. This is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, that, that cannot be confirmed. It never will because I, I never even met the casting director ever again after that. So, But I, I just have a feeling, like a, a comedic sense, like, I think my daughter hooked me up with that right there. Mm. <laughs> so it, it's funny. Well, at some point, your daughter's going to get too old. You'll just have to borrow someone else's baby. Borrow somebody else's baby? No, I don't want somebody else's baby. That thing was that was hard doing that. God bless single mothers out there. I would do that shit again. Uh, <laughs> uh, what was the audition like, though? What were you expected to to do? Did you have some lines you had to read? Yeah, just one line to read. Just a normal audition, one line to read. What was the line? Uh, it, it was the line for the part where I where Chalky wanted me to move the boxes out of his way. He said, "Clear it out here now." I said, uh, "Clear it off in a minute." And uh, that was the line. Clear it off in a minute. And he was like, a minute too late. That's it. Uh, <laughs> That's the life. That's the life of an actor. Every uh, a shitload of black people going, clear it off in a minute. <laughs> so, yeah. Did some of the guys uh, trying for out for this part, did they try to put a lot into that line? I mean, like, I, special? Oh, I have no idea. It was, you know, it was closed door, but I... I, I oh, you didn't there. hear the other guys. Yeah, okay. No, no, it's not like they auditioned us like right in front of each other. Okay, it was like like a cattle, like I just, they line us up like a basketball squad. No, I'm just trying to imagine someone who really wants to get that part, thinking I'm going to put something special into this line. Clear off in a minute. Hilarious. <laughs> clear off in a minute. I'm I'm really going to get this one right here. Watch this. Uh, no, yeah, it was. We should explain that uh, for those who haven't watched Boardwalk Empire, you were playing, you know, part of the crew of a black gangster in uh, the Prohibition era, right? Yeah, yeah. And, they can all watch it on HBO Go. I think I'm episode three and episode seven, and Chalky when Chalky gets his club in season four. Uh-huh. And uh, and you had another line in the show. Yeah, man. I uh, the other one where the the half face character came out. I, I forgot his name, and I told him to get back in the kitchen. Jose, this here private, and that. That really was the basis of one of my jokes on my album called Bulwark Empire, which was uh, which was so funny. Man, I got to call a white guy Ofe, which is like, in my opinion, like the white, the white N word kind of white nigger. But but not really because it, it. I don't know. It just died out. It just never had no power. <laughs> I remember first uh, running into it when I read the book um, Manchild in the Promised Land. Oh, kind of okay. a classic about black life in Harlem in like yeah. the 1950s, I think, and they were yeah. still using Ofe for white people. Uh, yeah, they were using Ofe, honky, honky referred to you know the 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 man coming into the project honking the horn for the black prostitute. Is that right? They, yeah, I never knew right. that. Oh, yeah, honky. Yeah, so the white man would come in and say, ha ha, they oh there go honky right there. <laughs> Trying to get that black pussy. There you go. And that so became the that. just general slang for a white guy. 
Yeah. Uh, Ofe, I have read, is like pig Latin for foe. Yeah, I read that too. There is definitely pig Latin for foe, which is enemy. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, same thing with the black town, where it's like, yeah, the white man was the enemy in the 50s and 40s and, and all before that time. So it, it definitely had the double, the double definition for foe and also for black people. It's like, yeah, man, fuck them. Like, I remember my uncle used to say that, like, them old fair. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? Like, man, white people, that's what the hell that mean. That's, you know, it gave kind of an ignorant answer, but it was so funny. <laughs> it, was so, it was so true, you know. Uh, and by the time you were growing up, it was Cracker, right? Yeah, Cracker. I guess basically still is. There's nothing new that's come along since then. It's not, I mean, there never will be. I mean, there's just, there's just nothing that's just going to stick. And that's <laughs> But, but but what's the unity in that, if it does? I mean, and then that was my whole basis of the joke, where I try to, uh, where I try to find a word that can knock out the N word. You know, I, I just that was I thought that was an interest, interesting space to, to to wander and imagine. Like, hey, what what if this would happen? Would what would happen? You know? Yeah. So stuff like that interests me, and then I'm like, I like to work it out on stage and see if the crowd will take that ride with me. You know. Let's hear that um, routine from your album, uh, your album Home Game, which came out pretty recently, right? Yeah, it came out Black Friday. And yeah. uh, the name of this uh, this bit or this track on the album is uh, Cracker Barrel, right? Yep, Cracker Barrel. There'll never be a word that can offset, nigga. And that's just my journey. Never, man. Any word, like, we get mad, we call white people, they take it as a compliment, like, oh, that shit is dope. <laughs> <laughs> like honky, ha ha ha, funny. <laughs> cracker, cracker. They was like, "Ooh, gonna name some restaurants after that." <laughs> There's restaurants across the country called Cracker Barrel. <laughs> they got it's a good restaurant. They got some good pancakes. I ain't gonna fake. <laughs> Here's the thing that kills you about Cracker Barrel. Like that's the only restaurant. In America, the racial slur in front of it. Only. You're not going to go down south and eat at the nigga shack. Like, that's not happening. Hey, y'all, welcome to the nigga shack. First of all, I'm going to work here. Later. <laughs> yeah, I'm off the clock, man. Yeah, we don't cook tacos after six. You must be fucking crazy. Nigga shack's over. <laughs> I want to open up my own nigga shack. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I do. Just like, I just want to open it up. I want to have hidden cameras. I just want to see white people order food off my menu. That's it. That's it. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, it's all named that? <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Um. Uh, all right, so can I um, can I have the N word nuggets? <laughs> you want the nigga nuggets? <laughs> Just say nigga nuggets. <gasps> <laughs> no! I'm so sorry. 
I thought this was the Shake Shack. I made a big mistake. This isn't the Shake Shack? Ooh. I gotta go. Uh, so that's a track off your comedy album, uh, you being uh, Nori Davis and the album being Home Game, uh, yes, where sir. you're talking about the uh, the power or lack of power of racial slurs applied to white people compared mm-hmm. to the old reliable insults that white people, some of them, use for black people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah and so I think for, for cracker or for honky or any other <laughs> any other word to have <laughs> oh, any real man. power... Yeah. yeah, exactly. You'd have to change history for it to really have power. Yeah, you would definitely have to change history. And uh, it's funny you say that. I, and you would have to get a time machine or Back to the Future, McFry, dock you up to use their uh, DeLorean and go back there <laughs> and, and really, really make some changes. Put a, put a little pebble in the, in the river and make some ripple effects. But other than that, it is what it is. And I just think it's cool to explore instead of doing the whole white people that black people is mm-hmm. i just want to i just want to like take it to another area because i used to just talk it out on stage and i would get like a lot of chuckles but it would come out funny i'm like all right so maybe if i just perform it here and do this there after a while it becomes a bit and you're like oh, okay great this turned it, it turned into something and then people consistently would laugh every time i said it and then they're like oh well there's the joke that's something that's so fascinating to me, man. Starting from a small little idea, and then it just manifests into like a a big bit that you can put on your album, or people put it on YouTube, or people like refer you after a show about it. Like, yo, man, I love that whole nigga shack shit, man. And I can that's like sometimes white people saying that, which is weird, <laughs> but I don't know. I I mean, I. I did say it. So well, it like, well, well, tell me. I mean, a, a white person is supposed to say N-word shack, right? Yeah. Which sounds well, ridiculous, doesn't it? It does sound ridiculous for them because that's just like social taboo. But, you know, when when you're a comic on stage and there's an audience that's captivated and they, they enjoy it, they feel like they have this privilege, like like we're friends. Because you kind of are. Because, like, you, you came on stage. I didn't know who the fuck you are. You made me laugh. Now I want to be your friend. I want to hang with you. What can I say to get to relate to you? Man, that nigga shot was great. And it's like, oh, yeah, thank you, even though that's weird, but okay. <laughs> but I, I'm always for taking the compliment than trying to fix an audience member's social beliefs. Do you find as a black comedian that people still expect you to do the what you just called the white people do this, black people do that kind of, kind of material? Yeah, uh, it depends where. I think on the road, they're a little bit more behind than New York, New York, and our California a little bit more forward, where you can just be yourself because they are they already experienced that with Chappelle and Chris Rock and prior even. So it, yeah, it's it's, it's old. Now, yeah, there's at the point that there's a lot of young, forward moving, funny black comics like myself and uh, Che, Monroe Martin, Damian Lemon, to where we can just go up there and be ourselves. And we don't have to mention that we're black or we, we just talk about our experiences and, and people go from there. So it's, it, it's great. So it, it's really our choice if we want to take it there. And if we do, it better be something great. It better not be some shit that's already been talked about. <laughs> yeah, people have been down that road for so long. It always amazed me how, uh, how many decades 
people were able to milk that kind of premise. I mean, they're still milking it on Vine, if you yeah. ever heard of that yeah. application. But the thing about Vine, it's, uh, it all depends on your audience. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the Vine audience are like, what, 9 years old, 10 years old, yeah. 12, all yeah. the way to like 20-something. So those kids don't know who Eddie Murphy is or Chris Rock. Or, or the or um, George Carlin, the five curse words. They don't know those. Those, those were that was our generation. Those young kids, they don't have the priors of the Patrice O'Neal, the the Rocks. So they've been saying that joke over and over. Black people that, white people that. It's, it's, but coming up in the real realm of stand up as an art form, we know, we know that that road's been driven down. People have been ran over on it, deer, roadkill. There's even there's even a, a, a rest spot. There's even a McDonald's there. There's a lot of things. There's a, I think right what I did for this album, there's a cracker barrel there. So I I will no longer go down that road and I will try another place. Right. <laughs> well as long so, as uh, as long as race remains a, uh you know, a problem. It'll always be a, a, a issue. It'll always like, be an know, issue, it, which means it'll always be there for comedy, you know, in yeah, some way. Yeah, and always be there for us to, to find a way to make, to heal the world again, to heal the two parties of, of any race. Like, there's a lot of Spanish that don't like Haitian, and uh, there's a lot of other interracial beefs. So as long as that's going on, there'll always be somebody to, to, to make light of it, to make fun of it, to, to heal it, to heal the parties back together. That's, that's what I believe. Do you think joking about it always heals it, or can it just sort of paper over certain things? I think it would it would help us hopefully get past it, um, but it'll never truly fix it. You can't really fix anything at the end. You got to fix it from the beginning, and there's no time machine, so there's no way to fix it. So I do agree with you. Like papering over it, yeah, it's just like this is fucked up. But let's see how we can find a way to live in this space and have a good time <laughs> without being so depressed and angry. Because you're depressed and angry, it's just you, you can't do nothing. There's no fun in that shit. Well, I mean, I, I obviously think that comedy has had a huge, huge part in moving attitudes forward about a lot of things. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you've got material that deals with homophobia. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, racial slurs, things like that. And I think comedy has been really important in all those areas. But yeah. sometimes I, I look at how much, for instance, just one example, how much some white audiences love a black comedian saying white people do this, white people do that. And I think, yeah. what's really going on here? Is it there? Are they, are they getting over certain things or are they sort of, um, thinking, oh, we can laugh at ourselves. What good sports we are. Uh, and then we go back to doing whatever we've been doing all along. <laughs> yeah, is it is it actually physically changing people? Is it mentally changing? Them? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I doubt an actual angry racist person would wouldn't even go to a comedy show. I think they don't find anything fucking funny. <laughs> I think it's the actual people that do want change and are open minded that have already changed, and they're they're looking at this as a good time. Um, but maybe those people that do come out, maybe their wife brought their husband out or or the husband brought the wife out and she's kind of closed-minded on something and maybe the, the black performer opened up their mind and vice versa when there's a white performer in front of a whole bunch of black people, they open up their mind. I, I think it's still the, the double standard 
There are a lot of close-minded black people like, yo, fuck all that, fuck white people. They hate all, they hate us all, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or even this, even with the homophobia issue, it's like, yeesh, forget about it. So I talk about my sister being a transgender male and talk about homophobia in the black community to open their minds to it. Does it fix it? No, because people will have their views, but if they laughed at it, they thought about it, and now they whole I, I just hope they're opened up to it. So I wouldn't be able to one to attest to that. You have to you have to get one of those people and <laughs> be like, Hey, did the Nori joke fix you? Yeah, your sister your sister um is transgender. Now she's your bro- he's your brother. Yep. She he is my brother now. Yeah, so I was a born a female, now the male, uh my brother Khalil. And uh yeah, and he's 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 dope, man. It's my, my my brother right there, my little brother. And you have a you have a routine that that talks about that, uh, yes. And uh, was that was that a hard adjustment for you? Because I mean, aside from any kind of like homophobia or or hangups about it, it's just a huge, you know. It seems like it's a huge switch in uh, you know in a way of regarding a person who you grew up with. No, because um, we're siblings, so I, I love that person, but I really don't give a fuck about them. If that makes any sense. You, you mean know, about like, about gender? No, about about my my whatever they do. Whatever I see what you're my, saying. My, my brother does. As long as they're happy, I'm cool. Uh-huh. You know, because I, I got my own priorities going on. You know, we live together, and I just wanted to make sure at the time she was happy, and I was like, "Hey, if that's what you want to do, no doubt." But then I had to play, um, I had to play the middleman and try to like heal the bond between my mom and my dad and and the relationships between them, but which I didn't mind because I, in the end of the day, man, that's family, that's all you got, your blood and your friends. That's right, to tell you the truth, when he did tell me, I was just more scared of how the world would accept him. Yeah. Like, 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 wow, you're black, now you're transgender. It's like, do you need another social handicap right now? I mean, do you really need that? Um, so I feared how the world would take him in, and, and everything's been good. So I've been trying to also make him feel good with the material, and it has, man. He enjoys it, and the family all around enjoys it, and people, like, get, like, a fresh perspective of that. Like, wow, I, I never thought how that life would be. So I sat down with my brother, explaining what he was going through. <laughs> he was smoking weed. He let me know he's going through, man. I was like, and now I know he's going through, man. I was like, oh, man, I feel you. I support you. It's fucked up, man. It's sad, man. It's like, uh, the best way I can explain it, it's like, you know, he felt like he came into the world the wrong gender. It's like the restaurant got your order wrong for life. <laughs> for life. And on my brother, transgender people, they stand up, they complain, say, hey, hey, I ordered sausage and I got fish. <laughs> Fix it. I ain't want this shit. I ain't order this. And the parents are like the restaurant. We thought you were fit. Nah, I ain't want that shit. I said sausage and two meatballs. God damn it. Bring this back. So that was a, a cut from uh, Nori Davis's new comedy album, Home Game. Uh, that was a true story of his sister who became his brother. Yep. And you say uh, your whole family's cool with it, that your parents are fine and everything's going well? 
Yeah, we all moved past it. Everybody's healed up. Everybody's on the same page. We are good. It took a couple of years, but during those years, I was working on that material and, like, finding the laughter. Because I, I would just turn my frustration of people not getting along with it, and then I would just transfer it into something funny. Like, I'm one of those guys where it's, like, an awkward family moment, and I'll just, like, scream out something funny and then try to make everybody laugh and forget about what mm. we just argued over or something like that. So my brother was a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> he's still an asshole. He's yeah. an asshole when he's a girl, an asshole when he's a guy. <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you know, you're making me think. We're talking about comedy as a kind of uh, catalyst for change and for healing and all that. And there is something, um, there is something like almost neurological that happens when you take something that's forbidden, and then you put it out there, and then someone laughs. There's a little like a uh, brain adjustment that's going on. Yeah. Uh, there's something I, you're you're doing some kind of neurosurgery out there. I think. Oh well, thank you, man. Well, yeah, because I just wanna. Uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like I want to be personal. And I, I mean, I came up with Tracy Morgan, and he used to always say, like, look, man, we go on that stage, we bare our soul. We, we cut our chest open, and we say, look, look at this motherfucker. Now now laugh at laugh at that. You know, you, you said, go up there, and that's what he said. He used to tell me that's what Pryor and everybody did. Like, Pryor would talk about his mom being a prostitute. Yeah. Or, um... Uh, or lighting himself on fire with lighting himself on fire <laughs> with the with the free base. Yeah, um, you know um, what, what the guy that was all the time um, with the cocaine. Oh, fucking forgot his name, man. Give me a you hint. Ah, uh, you know he would scream all the time. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh, you mean you, you mean S- Sam Kinison? Sam Kinison, <laughs> Sammy Sam. Yeah, man, he was crazy. Fucking, he was so real and raw and just. Now, that all that frustration came from a place, man. And uh, he was such a rock star. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, I, I I love that, and that's the kind of comic I want to be. Is where I never steer you wrong, man. I'm not bullshitting you. I'm not making all this stuff up. I, anything happened in my life, I'll try to be real and I protect some personal stuff, but I do like to embellish it and be like, yo, this is this is crazy right here, you know. <laughs> so in that spirit, uh, Nori. Um... Do you search for stuff inside yourself that's like really dark and painful and that you may be reluctant to talk about and say, oh, I know if it hurts, if it's tender, if it's dark, there's comedy potential there? Yeah, definitely. I I, I feel like there's comedy potential everywhere. I just have to find an angle where I'm comfortable telling the crowd this, a bunch of strangers this, and them laughing at it. And when I do that, then it's... uh, and it's nirvana. So if it, it, it all depends. If the cut's too soon, then I'll wait a little bit. But uh, I'll I'll go out there and tell it because it just takes me a little bit to get over it. And then after that, I'm like, all right, man, let me let me bear this out there. Let 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 me let the crowd be my therapist just for a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then I feel like the laughter is a initial reaction of relating to it, like either laughing at it. Or laughing with it. Mm-hmm. And coming as a, a young stand-up, we were, we're just all just trying to find our audience, man. Just find a group of people that are like, yeah, man, I fucks with him. And so they let you be yourself, let you be free instead of being trapped down to the rules of like a casino or a college or um, or or even a club. Sometimes. Can you uh, can you tell 
um, at some point early on if this audience is really ready for you and right for you, or is that something that you discover as you go along? Or You discover as you go along, yeah. yeah. It, it depends on the type of show. If I'm like doing a headline show, or it's like the first time at that club, I still have to treat it as an audience that doesn't know me because I'm still introducing myself. So I like to do... Uh, like to the stuff I really want to talk about. So I do like some nice safe ha 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 stuff and then I get a little darker and then they, and then at that time when they know the first ten, fifteen minutes when you've been funny, then you can kind of feel like, Oh man, we trust you. Go ahead, man. We 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 know you know you're not that serious. We know that you're all coming from a, a nice, fun, genuine place and you'll take us through the darkness and then you'll show us out. You'll 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 show us the light. And that's uh and that's the goal right there, man. So, yeah, you, you can definitely tell in the beginning. But you start by trying to make him comfortable. You don't want to hit him with, say, some Andy Kaufman-type stuff where and, immediately yeah, you there. you want him with some, <laughs> some N-words and some motherfuckers <laughs> right out the gate. So once you've so got him warmed up, then, what's, what is the most uncomfortable stuff you, you end up doing? Talking about the protest stuff, talking about um, uh, the gardener, the I Can't Breathe shirt, stuff like that. Yeah. Towards the, towards the end, but, so in the, but in the beginning... I'll just talk about, like, where I'm from or, like, now I'm just talking about, like, gentrification and what's going on in that and then in people's neighborhoods and um, talking about ungentrifying some places. And But it's all funny, true stuff. So they, they, they're like, wow, it's just, it just hits and hits. And then I go into a little darker spot, and then they're like, oh, I can feel that they trust me with it. And if some don't, then that's fine because it's a learning process, which, which uh, the, the faster you can learn, the the easier it'll be, the, the, the stronger set you'll have and the more following and, and more people will buy the CD. Like, people have been buying my CD after the shows when I have, like, great sets, which is awesome. That, that's just so exciting. Same thing, just like a freaking racing car. Same excitement, man. So good. So, so, you, so you used to drag race on the streets of Yonkers? Yeah, man. On Central Avenue, we used to go up to Connecticut and street race. We used to go up to... Uh, and then right there in the Bronx in the street race, and then even down there in Jersey. Yep. I'm assuming your father didn't know about that. Not at all. <laughs> Until the end, he did. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got And I got arrested, and he had to come get me out. But, yeah. Ooh, that must have been embarrassing for somebody. Oh, man. It was embarrassing both, man. That that was the only time he, he said nothing the whole ride back, and him saying nothing just said 10,000 10, words to me. So I was like, I'll, I'll never get, I'll Ooh. never do it again. I just said, I'll never get caught. <laughs> <laughs> Did he have to, like, walk past his colleagues on the force uh, and take his son, you know? Oh, no, but because where I got arrested, I was in Connecticut. Oh, so, okay, okay. That wasn't his colleagues. That's they, a little better. Saw, yeah, exactly, but they saw, like, oh, yeah, really? But but it was still embarrassing. Like, you know, he, he didn't want his son to be one of those spoiled-ass fucking kids getting caught up and then parents always bailing them out. He, he didn't want to be part of that, you know? So, oh, I, um, I imagine, like, his greatest fear would be that you would turn into the kind of kid that he would have to arrest someday. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I, shoot, I don't want to be that. That's my biggest fear. I mean, after that, that was the last time I ever ended up in the jail cell. They handcuffed me to the bench. I was like, this is not cool. I'm not doing this again. <laughs> you say it was the last time. Was it the first time, too? Yeah, that, excuse me. Yeah, it was the first <laughs> time and the, and the goddamn last time. <laughs> I'll tell you that, buddy. <laughs> well, now that you're a comedian, uh, there's very little risk of that, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. 
Not since Lenny Bruce have comedians gotten locked up for their performances, as far as I know. Exactly, unless they have like a big fight after. Other than that, nope, I, I am arrest-free. And I'm not out there protesting, so everything's great. Mm. <laughs> I you know see- a lot of comics that got out. The young, young, young comics, mm. they went out there. And they, they, you know, they risked their lives and they want to share their voice. But not too many because a lot of the black comics would be in the back and a lot of the white comics be in the front. So it was like a reverse civil war. It was, it was interesting. Wait, I, I think I'm missing something. When, when was this where the white comics would be in the front and the... Protesting. But Black Lives Matter and all that, when they were protesting, like, West Wharf. Yeah. But, I mean, not just white comics, but, like, just white people. A lot of the liberal, hipster, NYU students would be in the front. A lot of the black kids would be in the back. And they would get arrested first. And it's funny to me to where it was like a reverse civil war when a lot of the black soldiers had to be in the front to take the shots for sure. the white yeah. soldiers. So it's like, wow, history repeats itself, but it's just in reverse now. And then I would just do like a, like, like yeah, 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 Billy. Billy's like, yeah, I got your back. No, he's like, yeah, go ahead, brother. I, I appreciate the fight. Thank you, man. Stay up front. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be I'll be back here. I'm gonna get arrested. I don't know. Your mom will get you out. Don't worry. You'll be all right. Thank you, brother. You know. <laughs> uh, it, and see right there. There's just something I found that, that. Oh man, maybe I can talk about that and 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 find the funny in that right there. Mm. You know? uh, mm. So yeah, that that's what I'm working on right now. Mm. Have you had any conversations with your dad though about the the protests? I mean, I know how the New York the NYPD reacted. Obviously, yeah. Uh, yeah. After mm-hmm. the officers were killed, especially anybody associated yeah. with the protests, um, you know, was the enemy kind of. At least that's the feeling I got. Um, yeah. So, what's have you talked to your dad about that and how he feels about all that? Uh, like real briefly, I think we talked about the Eric Garden to where um, him talking as a police officer, like in that situation, anything can happen. Like the chokehold's out law, but the takedown is not. So. Um, that's him talking as a police officer. But his whole attitude towards it is like, look, man, well, just it ain't got nothing to do with me. I, I ain't got nothing to do with it. You know, mm. like if, if I'm not, if it's not bothering me, I'm not bothering it. He's mm. one of those guys. Like I'm out of, I'm out of dodge. I'm out of trouble. I, I have nothing to do with it. So that's the kind of perspective I take with like actually living my life around New York. Like I told you earlier, where look, man, let me not put myself in that position to where I gotta deal with that. I mean, I don't like where, you know, young black men are getting arrested or and I don't like cops getting, like, good cops are getting repped like those uh, bad cops like that. They're, they're great cops. And we also need police, man. I love the police. So, again, I'm in between, man. So I'm just trying to weigh the, to heal both sides mm-hmm. with laughter. And I, I feel like I took on that responsibility for no reason. Like, I, I just like to, to, to talk about something that's like, uh, that, that that's so fresh, and I, I did the show on Long Island, and the first show was kind of rough because like they're very conservative and they have their views, but the second show was much more younger, and all the protesters have killed, and and I love the feedback from the audience because they tell you, man, they'll tweet you, they'll, they'll Facebook you, like yo, man, that stuff you said was great, that was funny, that was raw, uh, that was something real, man. I was like, wow, how can you make that funny? And and you did it, and I like that. And stuff like that just keeps driving me, keeps throwing coal in my fire. Like, all right, cool, I'm, 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 I'm somewhere. I'm, I think I found a place there. So that's, uh, that's where I take it, you know? Awesome. Hey, Nori, uh, yeah. do you see more acting uh, roles coming your way? I think it's, it seems to happen to uh, comedians who get 
a certain amount of visibility? I don't know. I, I, would, I would love to. I would love the opportunity. I love acting, man. I really love getting into that world and getting into character and I really like bringing other people's words to life. Um, I would like to go into drama one day and really explore that. Aside from the uh, Boardwalk Empire uh, part that you had, I know that you did a, a small part in an Amy Schumer, Inside Amy yeah. Schumer episode. Um, do you want to describe the setup for this? We could play a little bit of uh, a bit of this, at least the part that Amy Schumer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amy is playing, uh, you know, a, a regular white girl shopping in um, like an urban outfit store that has a lot of black employees. And the black employees work off commission, and I'm one of the first sales associates that help her into the dressing room. And then at the time, uh, she wasn't on SNL, but she is a maid. Uh, she was the cashier, and she said, yeah, can you tell us who helped you? And she looks around, and all the black sales associates look the same to her. <laughs> so she's like, just like a, a usual mind that any person has. It's not like a racist mind. It's just like a socially awkward position anybody goes through is when you really did not absorb that person so you just like all you know is that they were black and they had glasses and she and she cannot pick and so it's that awkward situation of her not knowing who we are but she doesn't want to seem racist so she's trying to avoid and she it. doesn't want to seem racist at all yeah very true so uh yeah that's the clip it, it, it was a fun sketch and, and it was part of a pilot episode which is awesome it was good to be a part of that did someone help you today yeah um Black eye, black eyes. He has black eyes. Yeah, he had black eyes. So he's black pupils. Yeah. Are there any other distinguishing features? I would guess he probably voted for o Obama. I know I did. What? Oh my God, that's him. That's definitely him. He doesn't wear here. Okay. You know what? I just remembered. Nobody helped me, so forget it. Okay. We work on commission here, so if someone did help you, you should probably tell me. Can I just like give you like ten dollars and you just leave me alone? Um, Nori, one last question for you. No problem. Yeah. On your album, uh, again, the one we've been talking about, Home Game, there are several um, bits begin with little uh, recording from what sounds like an answering machine. Somebody leaving you little pep talks or little browbeating <laughs> messages. Browbeating. That's a good one. I never heard browbeating. <laughs> I like that. Actually, I said, I said, <laughs> I said browbeating, but I, but I think browbeating oh, is actually brow better. Okay, I think bro beating is better. Bro beating is better. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is better. Yeah, it is like bro beating. <laughs> it definitely is. <laughs> Who is that voice, though? I thought I recognized it uh, at at certain points. No, no, that's uh, you would not recognize those uh, those two voices. Uh, they're two different black guys, and they're they're both my uh, my two best friends that I grew up with that I still talk to today. Uh, and um, one's Omar that's doing the bro bashing, and the <laughs> other one is Michael uh, Michael, who's doing like the uplifting in the beginning, right, right, and, and then the end. So what what we always do is that like, we all text, but when we call each other and we don't pick up, then we just start leaving like crazy voicemails on each other's phone. Uh huh. So that that was just a compilation of a bunch of messages that my uh, that my best friend Omar left. Just giving me like some motivation, the opposite of motivation, just telling me how hard I am. Yeah. I still listen to it to this day. It's so good. Uh, I wanted to share that with the people to let them know like where, where my drive and motivation comes to. Like, cause even when I do have a bad set, uh, there's those guys that will say like, yeah, man, you're horrible. That's why that didn't work. You <laughs> suck. Now, what are you going to do to get better? 
And it's got some good response, man. I just and I'm also a big fan of like hip hop albums that you they have like like Wu Tang would have these long interludes, yes. or, like these uh, these like skit like play interludes between the songs. Yeah. And I just think that's such a great breakup, like a great uh, break from the music where it's like it becomes an art piece all of a sudden. You know, it's just not like here you go, listen to this. It's like no, man, let me tell you a story, and it all connects and intertwine. Uh, who else did that perfectly? Kendrick Lamar's album did that perfectly. So I wanted to do a stand-up comedy album to where I can let people know where all this is coming from. We're all like, each joke, it's getting funnier and funnier because I got this guy just shitting on me, shitting on me, shitting on me <laughs> throughout the album. So that was um, that was the basis of why I did the voicemail. Yeah, I'm glad you included it. Hey, Nori, thanks so Thank much you. for uh, for talking uh, today, and I look forward to seeing you. seeing more of your work as your career you blossoms. So much, your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Nine one four. Word. You don't answer the phone anymore. You good now, huh? You got an album now? You got where you came from, man. Born in the hood. I said that joke. Remember? Got where you came from. Living. I hope your album garbage. I hope you go triple wood. I hope nobody buys it. No garbage. Oscar the Grouse don't want it. Holler at me. Now that is what I call bro beating. Thank you, Omar. And thanks today to Nori Davis, who you can learn more about at noridavis.com. Nori is spelled N-O-R-E. You can learn more about this radio show at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll return in one week.